Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It sounds counterintuitive to do serious work. You actually need to free your mind and let it play. Because when you are playing, it is effortless. Thinking about the future is effortless if it is fun. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Dale Stanley from the National Security College Futures Hub. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Today I'm joined by Dr. Ryan Young, Dr. Joseph Foros, and Odette Melly, who are all experts in the field of strategic foresight. Welcome. Thanks for having Hello us. Hello there. Great to be here. Today I'd like to explore with you what futures analysis is, and an alternative term, strategic foresight. So we're definitely not sitting here with a crystal ball trying to predict the future, but we want to explore what futures futures analysis is. And often we describe this as a set of approaches and methods that help us explore, imagine, and anticipate the future in an open but structured way. So my guests bring really interesting and diverse experience to the conversation today. Joe, you are a physicist and have worked in strategic foresight for 25 years. Odette, you have a background, uh, an academic background in leadership, and you've worked in the public service, specifically in the Australian Federal Police for 16 years, where you led their Strategic Insights Centre, and you now have your own strategic advisory company. And my Futures Hub colleague, Dr. Ryan Young, uh, you set the Futures Hub up here at the National Security College with Professor Rory Metcalf about seven years ago. So I'm keen to hear from all of you about your backgrounds, how you ended up doing this work, and why it's so important. I might start with you, Ryan, if you could tell us a little bit about the Futures Hub. Thanks. Yeah, great. So futures analysis, at least how we think about it, is a structured way of, I guess, grappling with the longer term, bigger picture trends and dynamics that we're going to be facing. And it's a kind of practical way to integrate that into kind of how we think about the world, how we make decisions, how we go about, you know, doing our day to day jobs, good day to day lives. Uh, the futures hub started because there's been a long-standing feeling across a lot of the Australian public service and elsewhere that we don't do long-term thinking well. We struggle to wrestle with the longer-term dynamics and we tend to get caught up being reactive, you know, dealing with what's in front of us and not thinking strategically. So Futures Hub was a way that we thought we could, I guess, build a centre of excellence in this and a centre of excellence in doing it for and with government agencies. Uh, particularly as they're often rushed and stretched and pressured. 
but also the fact that we at the National Security College have partnered, but at the ANU gives us a, enough kind of space and uh, ability to challenge, provoke, think bigger picture um, in an independent way that helps feed back into government agencies and do it. But the key thing there is trying to do it in a structured, practical way that uh, delivers real value for decision makers. Um, I came here out of government. I was working in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet doing lots of strategic policy work and had done some strategic foresighting projects in there. So personally, uh, it wasn't something that was on my long-term radar. My crystal ball didn't have me working in futures and foresight. Uh, but it was something that interested me. Uh, the opportunity came up and the opportunity to, I guess, try and do something different, uh, a bit unique, but something that I thought could really add value to the broader Australian policy community and the broader ways we think about it. And your academic background's in philosophy, which yes. is really interesting. So how does that kind of play into the way you approach problems with a long-term lens? Uh, I guess key thing is we often talk in futures and foresighting that's a lot about assumptions, mental models, the kind of thinking. My background in philosophy is logic, epistemology, for those who knows what that means. And so it's really complementary. You know, a lot of futures and foresighting in the end is kind of teasing back to the assumptions teasing back to kind of how we know things and putting that back together. And my philosophy training is very much in that. So uh, you probably wouldn't expect it, but really nice overlaps that have set me up well. Yeah, great. That's excellent. And I think it's worth noting that the Futures Hub, in partnership with government, that practical nature of what we do. So while we're looking at long-term issues, it always comes back to actions today and how we can prepare for those possible futures. What about you, Joe? You've been doing this a long time. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how you ended up being a futurist. Okay. I'll, I'll have to go back to um, so finishing. So I started as a theoretical physicist and, um, as I said in today's class, people would say, how in the world does someone doing physics research end up doing futures research? Aren't they two diametrically different things? And I see a tremendous overlap between them because they're both about trying to understand the world, explore the world, and explain the world. Uh, physics uses past events, so it's descriptive knowledge, but futures uses potential future events that we have to imagine. You can't measure them, you have to imagine them. And so it comes down to the difference between knowledge and imagination. Uh, I mentioned the Einstein quote, Imagination is more important than knowledge because knowledge is limited, whereas imagination encircles the world. And I think that's centrally important. All our knowledge is about the past, to quote a well-known futurist, but all our decisions are about the future. We can know about the past which we can't alter. That which we can alter, we don't know about or have limited knowledge about. So to me, the transition from trying to understand the world through physics to trying to sense the emerging world through futures is just a natural progression. It, they both call upon mental models. Uh, in physics, you know that what you're doing is a model. You then have to confront it with reality, and guess what? If the universe disagrees with you, it's the model that gets chucked out. So there's a, a strong yoga there, if you will, or a strong um, check on the hubris that you might have about how beautiful your model is. So when you come to the future, it's the same thing. So thinking about the future requires disciplined imagination and it's got to be practically applicable. 
in all of the courses that we used to teach in the old Master of Foresight at Swinburne. It was designed to be directly applicable to your organisation, whatever that context was. And that's very important. It is about imagination, but it has to be disciplined. It can't be unbounded unless that's actually part of the process. So you can have unbounded parts, but as long as they're brought back into where is this going, why is this doing it. So after physics, there was some internet stuff. I was at Netscape for a while. That imploded, as we all know, in 1998. So outplacement consulting, long story short, I ended up asking people how to become a futurist and eventually ended up at Swinburne uh, as a consultant initially, then working for the vice chancellor for a couple of years and then transitioning while I was doing that. I was doing guest lectures into the Master of Foresight and transitioned into that. So I was there on day one and then day last. I was there on day one as a guest on the last day to turn off the lights when it was shut down at the end of 2018. And I've been freelance, um, free range or maybe even feral uh, (laughs) since then. Great. And Odette, let's get a sense from you of how you ended up working in strategic foresight. That'd be great. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Jail. And look, I think uh, I've come in at the right time, you know, post Brian and and Joe's comments there, um, because there's definitely some overall connection for me. I uh, obviously AFP career. A uh, number of years, and I have to correct the record. It's a little bit longer than sixteen, but we won't have to go into that detail. <laughs> um, but that said, uh, when I was given uh, this excellent opportunity um, uh, to do what you will with the future of the AFP, and particularly in relation to setting a strategic context, which was um, born out of a, a document for the AFP, trying to really kind of set a strategic or a strategy for future capability. Um, my first connection, and dare I say it, um, uh, mentor, if I could be so bold, was Futures Hub, and it was Ryan Young. And I think at the time you were the only one there, Ryan, yes, standing was. alone in the in in uh, in the NSC, um, trying to establish the uh, the Futures Hub. Um, so so the the man the mantra that was given to me is create the art of the possible mm-hmm. from a futures perspective by a former Deputy Commissioner and, of course, coming from a very rigid construct such as the AFP by virtue of its tradition and its bureaucracy, which it had to be, particularly as a, a responsive policing agency that serves uh, Australia and and the world, um, it was, well, how do you free think in this space and create that art of the possible and be creative and imagine, as Joe has just already said, and inculcate that imagination within an organisation when everything is very standard operating procedure. So I knew that I was set up for a particular challenge, but I was willing to take that on. And the wonderful thing with that is from my previous experience across many um uh, operational um, support roles in very much a policy perspective. I'd come across on many occasions the uh, requirement to obviously think ahead, whether it was new policy initiatives, whether it was the standard environmental scanning that was done that was often just taken to a conceptual level as opposed to bringing it down into the practical. So the challenge here was we needed to use this platform now to create practical outcomes for an organisation that really needed to understand what was coming over the horizon, as it were. Uh, so 
in doing that, what I tried to do was create a sense of play, particularly to imagine new worlds as opposed to be stuck into what happened yesterday and that was kind of what was going to happen in the future and it was not the same. Um, so in in trying to do that, it was trying to create those systems and processes that were very future technique orientated but also grounded in, grounded in you know, capability of the future, workforce of the future, um, technology of the future, and 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 get get the organisation to be a part of that thinking as well. Great. I might put the question out there also if we're appealing to people that want to know more about how to do this thinking and this work. What are some tools that people? can apply what are futures methods that we should be talking about here we understand you know as a t as part of the futures hub team you know, we talk about trends and drivers and signals and shocks but let's speak to our, our listeners about what, what futures really is and how they can think about the future in a more practical way joe have you got some thoughts on that what what are the things that you do in scanning your environment and thinking about um, the future and possible scenarios Oh, okay. Well, if we're getting into the, the scanning practice, then um, so there's a there's a tension between looking at the signals that are coming and being overwhelmed by them. So I have a little maxim. I've got about ten scanning heuristics that are on my blog site that I've listed from practice that I did many years ago, which continues on. But I call it the Goldfinger Principle, um, which is it comes from the book, not the film. The book was actually structured in, in three parts and to do the accent, maybe I won't do the accent, but they have a saying in Chicago, Mr. Bond, once is happenstance, twice is coincidence, the third time it is enemy action. Now, given that Fleming worked in naval intelligence and was briefing Churchill, it's quite possible that quote actually emanates from Winston Churchill himself because it sounds like something he would say. So I use that in scanning. I notice it the first time okay, I've seen that before, and now, so that's my threshold condition. Now, that might not be appropriate for other places. Certainly in cybersecurity, the first signal is the warning that you've got to take. But again, it's my personal practice. But it's it's watching and looking for the thing that doesn't fit. That's a, another principle I use. Richard Feynman was a famous physicist in the 20th century. It's the thing that doesn't fit that's the most interesting. So if I'm scanning and I notice something that just jars, it's like, huh? What's that? So that will get my attention. And sometimes this overrides the Goldfinger principle. If it's if it really doesn't fit, then I might follow that down. So this comes back to a discussion that we've just been having in the course, of course, the dark art of foresight. And a lot of this work, good scanning, comes from the experience of the scanner. And that's something you need to have done. It typically, it takes two to three years to build a proper scanning function in an organisation. So those organisations that are wanting a quick solution, quote unquote, are really attempting a metric that is impossible. Uh, so this, this, the scanning each day, uh, trying to mix up the sources, uh, forcing yourself to listen to or find sources that you wouldn't actually find. I call that the Demono principle, consciously seek out novelty. So build into your scanning practice voices you won't hear, sources you wouldn't read, I used to do it by changing the radio station and forcing myself to listen to viewpoints I wouldn't ordinarily hear. So build in novelty and be on the lookout for the stuff that doesn't fit 
and then interrogate why. Ryan, what about you from a practical point of view? What do you sort of advise people on how to practically apply futures analysis techniques? I think there's, I guess, a couple of key things to think about. First thing I want to say is that uh, often we're quite good at thinking about the future and thinking about scenarios in the future in our personal lives. Um, We have a stake in our personal lives. We think about where our job, what job we might want to do, and we kind of imagine how that might play out in different futures. So really encourage people to kind of start by just asking some of those questions. Uh, What might the future be like here? How might it be different? What are the options? But also picking on kind of what are we seeing at the moment? And if that continues, how does that mean the future might be? Might it change? Might it be the same? And But also thinking about the kind of some of the uh, complexity you know, maybe say we see this happening economically, we see this happening in geopolitics, put them two together and kind of what is the future that might emerge from the combination of these. These are kind of quite simple questions, but you can get some really interesting and quite profound outcomes. The starting point is that uh, we don't know how the future will be like, so we need to kind of explore the range of possibilities and and think just reminding yourself that it could be different, how could it be different? And then I guess the next stage always encourage people to think about is if the future is going to be different or if this future is going to be like this, what does that actually mean? What does that mean for the world? What does that mean for us? Does that mean we need to be doing anything differently? And how would I know if that's the way the future is going to go? So key questions is probably the easiest way into it. You can structure them into a range of techniques. But uh, I think the starting point is just asking yourself those questions and paying attention to what's going on around you. Thanks. You've each mentioned the unimaginable and sort of opening the mind up um, to possibilities. Um, Joe, you you often quote this uh Quote, the present moment used to be the unimaginable future by Stuart Brand from The Clock of the Long Now. What does that mean to you in the work that you do? Well, again, it's about imagination. You know, I mean, the, the previous question that you asked, so I was talking about a particular kind of scanning, which is undirected viewing, which is just to try to sense everything, but you can narrow that down. Ryan was more talking about the more sort of directed viewing or the, the you know, unconditional or the, or the, the a type of search. Um, with the with the unimaginable future is that we we are living in futures or we are living in a future, shall we say, that was unimaginable to people. Um, and even the most outlandishly imaginative people have not imagined this future. So that that tells me that we need to really work hard to expand imagination, as as Odette said. It's like we we need to we need to play. It's, it sounds counterintuitive to do serious work. You actually need to free your mind and let it play because when you are playing, it is effortless. Thinking about the future is effortless if it is fun. Mm-hmm. And so this is one of the paradoxes of doing serious foresight is that the better you, you do it, the more fun it feels, the less intensive, the less draining and Groups that have done really, really well in foresight processes are energized at the end of it. I mean, frequently you do workshops, you know, whatever, I, I won't name particular types of workshops, but people are drained at the end of it. Oh, God, that was so tiring. Mm. But when they emerge from a, a futures workshop or a foresight workshop, people are energized, mm. they're bright. And you can see that that look in their eyes, that they've they've seen things they haven't seen before or imagined 
like Alice would do, half a dozen impossible things before breakfast each morning. And so I come back to this quote, um, and Stuart Brain actually meant this as a re response to a particular poem, but I've quoted this because it does require us to remember that this future didn't have to be. It wasn't even imagined, and yet here we are. You can go back far enough. And so that tells us that if we are now standing in the present, which was the unimaginable future once, and looking to a different future, we need to be ready for unimaginable things, and that means we need to think about, as I call them, preposterous futures. And sometimes those futures can make us feel a little uncomfortable. Which Very much so. Which isn't a bad thing. Can I jump in? Absolutely. On, on Joe um, and, and, and Ryan in, in what you've both said again. Um, I think it's going forward, particularly in relation to futures techniques, on you know the assumption that people you are going to engage can play and can have an imagination, and they do. So, you know, I was often asked, well, how are you going to, ex you know, how are you going to get some, uh, you know, future thinking and scenario development from operational uh, police officers or, or um, you know, people that haven't gone beyond the realms of systems and processes? Uh, again, you give them that permission you ask the right questions, you engage them, and they will go into almost a state of play where they're allowed, they are they have no bounds. And I think without, you know, creating too much of that too far to one side of it is purely an academic exercise here and completely conceptual and philosophical and to the practical on the other side it's basically being in the middle of that and sort of and 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 saying giving giving people permission to be and play and think beyond the normal realms and and some wonderful things happen when that is allowed when that environment cre is created and you know organizations don't need much it's just the permission to do mm. so mm. That is my experience. And, and it can neutralise that mm. conversation where people might have a stake in, in a particular future or that they want to see happen or a policy or whatever it might be. But when you bring them into a, a possible future or a scenario that may or may not occur, it can bring diverse perspectives together and allow new ideas to, to percolate. It's True. And, and I think the important piece there as well when you talk about diverse diverse thought, um, you know, it's, it's making sure that you're not you know, bounded by the same group think, you know, and making sure in that conversation that you have that you have different people that come to the table um, beyond your own sector organisationally, you know, from industry, academia, um, because that's that's kind of where that cross-pollination occurs, particularly when you're doing these sorts of exercises. Uh, and that's been um, that's been my experience, and and with Ryan's team obviously assisting as well on many occasions to try and kind of get get the thinking kind of elevated a little bit more um, is is the diversity of thought is really really important as well. Really important. And Odette, on that sort of strategic planning, how have you really seen senior leaders sort of get on board with this idea of preparing for the future or thinking? long-term about issues? Again, I'd have to sort of probably best describe it as a bit of a push-me-pull-you from Dr. Doolittle where you go two steps forward and maybe one yeah. step back or maybe the 
the converse of that. But um, can I say on that point, particularly in bureaucratic traditional organisations, you have to be reasonably thick-skinned in this space and not shy away from the challenge because the the tendency from within is to stick with what you know and you have to respect that but you have to work with them to move them forward. So um, my experience has, has basically been very much along the lines of um, using futures very much probably in three layers within the organisation, primarily at a strategic level, um, operational, so divisional level, and probably tactical team level. So it, it, it has worked on those sort of three tiers for me in that regard. Um, and it does work top down and bottom up as well. And mm-hmm. ideally, if you've got the bottom up and the top down working in sync, that's kind of when the whole organisation gets really quite um, energised. But as an example, um, uh, within a within a strategic planning perspective um, and trying to push them out beyond that standard 12 to 18 months, um, from an operational divisional uh, perspective is looking at are our business models still right, which quite often I would sit back and think this is not actually futures work, but it goes into the realm of the practical, right? So you're looking at big picture and you're bringing it down through their particular level of command or expertise or divisional requirement. And then it's like, well, hang on, that basically means our internal environment respective of that division might need to change a little bit. We might need to orientate more a communication strategy business model as opposed to shying away from that, from an external perspective. So it gets them to rethink how they do their business as well as with keeping their eyes on a particular preferred preferred um, future, how they how they sort of push through to that. Um, so it's a real it's a, it's been a real mix. Uh, COVID was a really good example, particularly from the AFP perspective. Had a brilliant opportunity to advise the commission, to um, advise the commission's advisory board, and um, uh, worked very closely with SRG Tactical Defence Trained Planners, uh, where we kind of combined our efforts. So it you can, it it's not limited. And it's not prescriptive and you can really make it what you mm. want dependent on what what serves what mm. serves your organisation. So I think that's the important thing. Don't be restricted by a particular – that's my mantra. I mean, you know, Joe might have a different view potentially and Ryan. Um, but, again, just speaking from lived experience, mm. be flexible um, and be ready for the challenge mm. and thinking a little bit out of the square. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. Yeah, I think listeners would probably value hearing those practical stories about how you've achieved something using a futures approach or a lens or how you've, whether you've done it as we sometimes use the term futures by stealth, you've kind of got people to stretch their mind into mm-hmm. the future and they haven't realised that they've done it. Um, Brian, have you got some examples you could share with people around how we've done our work in the Futures Hub? Uh, lots of examples. I think, you no know, one uh, good example is some work we've been doing recently with the department, helping them develop a strategy for kind of international standards and engagement. And that's really taken it back from actually giving, you know, these, this is an environment where we're setting international standards that take years to put in place mm-hmm. and then will be in place for a very long time. I um, had to start from the actually what's the, you know, major kind of drivers and dynamics in that particular space, in the broader economy, in the geopolitics, how these going to play out um, over time. And so what does the 10 to 15 to 20 year future potentially look like? Uh, and then key thing there was to actually get people. And so we did that work with uh, the department to engage a lot of stakeholders, you know, different industry groups and the like to tell us, what they thought the future was going to be like. So we kind of surfaced their ideas, identified a whole lot of things that the department and us would not have thought about because they were closer to the ground in their particular area. And then got people, got it, okay, these are the things we think we could very well be facing in 10 or 15 years. And these weren't consistent with each other, but kind of stretching the range of possibility. Uh, what would our national interests be? What would we want to see? What would we want to see across the different uh, scenarios? And then what does that mean? Okay, what does that tell us we should be focusing on for our the five-year strategy? So that's a kind of example of a more integrated approach. Uh, we've also done something we'd had a, a involved in a major conference recently, brought together about 170 people from around the world, I think it was 40-odd different countries, all in a particular area. And we did a half-day integrated game that used a kind of future scenario technique as uh, get everyone talking to each other on the same page, thinking about what are the things sharing from each other, going, we're seeing this happening, we're seeing happening, oh, that's really interesting, that's the same, or that's really different. And forming a kind of common picture and a common understanding of the future to help them set up some more serious discussions that they needed to have uh, later on in the conference. Um, and also probably can't, it's 2023, we have to mention AI, don't we? Chat mm-hmm. GPT and the like, it's a hot topic. Mm-hmm. And so we've got a few projects going where people are just trying to go, uh, how might this play out in the future? But what does that mean as applied into uh, schools or government services or uh, universities or other things, what might it look like? And, you know, we can't predict with a lot of detail precisely how the technology will play out, but it's technology embedded in human, economic, social, environmental systems. And we can have an, you know, build 
at least ideas about how that might work, even if we can't predict the actual mm. technology. It's probably worth highlighting that we're not doing forecasting. We're not putting a, a likelihood necessarily on the future, but we're doing foresight work. And we've also done some recent work um, with some departments, secretaries and their executive boards on, you know, generating scenarios about the future and then mm. stress testing what does that mean for planning today? Are we ready? Should we adjust our resourcing, um, our workforce model, policies, legislation, et cetera? Um, and we also often get asked to stress test current plans with what we think the future might look like. Um, very diverse our weeks um, and we do have a great job here at the Futures Hub. What about you, Joe? What sort of practical examples could you give listeners about? I mean, you are all over the world presenting on the foresighting and its importance, but where do you see it really practically applied? Uh, okay, well, I'll just mention a recent gig. So I was recently in Washington um, talking, well, shall we say, a, a major security alliance that was trying to bring together intelligence analysts and foresight analysts to think about the future strategic environment out to the next couple of decades. So principally that was around trying to, again, think about what do we identify? What are the, the, the key key drivers that we see happening? What are the implications for the future strategic environment, therefore the future operating environment, therefore future military and political planning? And I mean that's it's fascinating to do because these are very, very smart people. And the the practical outcome is, you know, to prevent war. <laughs> because you can't if you don't have a credible deterrent, then there is no deterrent. So that's that's kind of the you know the global end of it. Mm. Or um, just helping cybersecurity professionals think about the future of their attack surfaces and how that changes. That was you know a, a mm. big before that. So it, it ranges from organizationally based to how do I try to map out the, mm. the future attack global. surface for my organization versus the future attack surface <laughs> for our alliance. So practical. So diverse. I love it. Great deal of fun, but also quite um, scary is not the word, but it, it does focus the mind mm. because you know that this has an outcome that's measured in yeah. human lives, actually. And so I've, I found that working with defence people specifically has been one of the most rewarding aspects of doing foresight because mm. they take it very, very seriously mm. because it is very serious. Defence and national security is a an area where people get – the foresight um, imperative because in in corporates, you know, you lose money, but in in defence and national security, you lose people. And that's that's a reminder that this while there is there are aspects of play to to loosen our minds and to imagine things, it's got to be brought back down. That's why I mentioned disciplined imagination. Mm. You can play, but then where does this lead you? And this comes back to something that Edward de Bono used to talk about all the time is that you do these creative um, exercises that sound silly, but the idea is to jog the mind yeah. and to provoke the mind into a new pattern that would not necessarily have been there without the provocation. And that's the term that he actually uses, Poe is provocative operation. And so part of this is how do you imagine futures that we wouldn't have imagined otherwise? And then having done the imagining, bring it back to how do we now put this on our chessboard and make sure that our strategy is robust across a range of scenarios, 
not just one, the one that we want, robust across all of those as opposed to bidding the farm on a single one or hedging, which is a little bit of all of them. So how do you design a strategy that that is – impervious is not the right, right word, but is – is not overly badly affected by any of the plausible futures that you've tried to imagine so that you can adjust in an agile way and you're not knocked off your feet. I think if I could just jump in on that one, you know, you a really good example there. And I think it's all about taking that notion of strategy and embedding into strategy strategic foresight, futures thinking, and and going forward with an awareness within organisations that it is just about good strategy. And I'm not diluting futures and I'm not diluting strategic foresight, but I'm making it in their minds more accessible. And I go back to having presented, um, having an opportunity last year to present to um, the equivalent federal police in Chile in September Last year, and and having having presented to them, uh, and I I also talked about courageous strategy and the notion of you know organisations being courageous to step out of the normal construct of here's the twelve month plan, this is kind of what we do as a means, and if you use strategy in a purest sense, and particularly from a defence construct, that stratagem is really having a set of activities to get you to an outcome. So if we look at it that way, and and the, the, the wonderful thing with that is when I kind of put that forward as it is courageous strategy, it is being courageous enough to step out of your normal construct as an organisation and embedding some thinking that is not the standard or a practice that is not what you would normally do, but allowing that to happen and allowing it to take you somewhere else. Um, public sector, yes, not profit-driven, but it is performance-driven, national security, you know, this is kind of where we're at. There's nothing far more important than that. Um, so I think there's a couple, definite couple of points that resonated for me there, Joe, but also the fact that it is looking at the word strategy and probably just, um, uh, enhancing that a little bit more with that futures mm. piece to make it far more accessible to organizations as opposed to something that is too far, too far mm. in reach. Well, I was going to quote one of those maxims again, which is that um, typically failures of foresight are usually failures of either imagination or insight. So you haven't thought broadly enough or deeply enough. And I think this comes back to Ryan's point on logic and epistemology, which is you haven't questioned the assumptions to a deep enough level and so you've you've lost the insight that you might have got had you done so. Or you haven't thought more broadly, you've discounted certain futures as ridiculous or preposterous or that's never going to happen and yet – there it is. So, you know, I, I gave examples this morning of, of futures that were considered utterly preposterous, and yet here they are. They are now legislated in in Europe. <laughs> you know, the idea of of, of petrol powered vehicles or gasoline powered vehicles being banned in from a, a a joke bumper sticker from 2008 when we first started to use it mm. to the last drop of petrol being 2038. 
and yet the European Union has now legislated by 2035. It's gone from a preposterous idea that was intended as satire to coming up to be legislated reality. So that was a ridiculous idea that just because an idea is ridiculous doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to become reality. Okay, so do you have something else? Yeah, there? look, I, I think for me and having having worked very closely um, and continuing to work um, closely with, with CEOs and leaders of not-for-profit and various other organisations, it is it is clear for me that is, this is also an individual leadership piece as well as it is a collective leadership piece. And if you are wanting to really drive strategic change and drive it in the right direction, or at least if you are not in the right direction, be able to very quickly move and flex to where you need to be, you have to have leaders and leadership that are buying into thinking, strategic foresight and being a part of that. But, again, it also takes a little bit of internal reflection as well mm. um, to embrace and, um, and, and collectively work, work cohesively, particularly with the leadership team. Um, and that's a little bit of work that I'm doing now and sort of moving forward is probably more in that individual leadership and coaching, but to bring, bring that team together because it is no point doing all that work when the team, if I can say that, isn't, isn't connected on this because mm. this has to be driven, driven, um, you know, strongly by by the organisation. And again, you know, top down, bottom up. I mean, the whole organisation needs to be invested in it. Mm. Um, otherwise, it's just another conversation. Great conversation, right? Um, <laughs> you know, and and wonderful. Uh, but to be able to kind of really make a difference on the ground, and particularly the front line, depending mm. on what sector you're in. Um, is 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 the the final payoff of of making a difference, mm. particularly with some. Um, I mean, if we're talking first line responders, operational policing as well, being able to see those differences play out, um, is really key. Okay, I might sort of wrap up with a couple of questions. One being, what are what is one trend that you're keeping an eye on? that you think might shape or disrupt the future? What's interesting to you right now that you're watching? Well, I I just love the whole human-to-machine interfacing kind of ongoing developments and Elon Musk, Neuralink and the fact that they've given that the tick, which is quite scary and and partly positive, maybe, who knows? But I mean, there's good and bad to all these yeah. developments. Um, you know, they are talking about this actually being a positive in relation to helping, um, you know, paraplegics, quadriplegic, you know, disabled individuals. Um, but again, conversely, you know, the ethics behind that. And the regulatory requirements, uh, which is the co- ongoing conversation with the whole uh, AI piece, which I mentioned earlier. But I've, I find that curious and I continue to keep an eye on 
where that will go. Um, it's still a way off, but it's it's happening, and mm. it's. But I'm, I I find that an interesting thing. I mean, obviously, you know, we can't go any further without talking about that whole climate change piece and biodiversity loss, and that's that's mm. I think that's probably a bigger bigger impact maybe in. It's happening now. Five to ten years' time would be very interesting to see how that plays out. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll jump in with a more human kind of trend and dynamic that I've been watching. I mean, if we go back to 2016 and Brexit and Trump was seen as, you know, kind of a lot of ordinary people were fed up with the system. But I think the interesting thing from then is that sense hasn't been contained. It's spread and it's spread across vast parts of the world. So, you know, we had all the kind of protests, you know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand around COVID. We've had uh, Netherlands, there's farmers' protests. We've had farmers' protests in India. China, there were mass protests in November last year, which led to a change of government policy, which I wasn't expecting. And just the scale that this, a lot of ordinary people are really dissatisfied and people are turning out and actively protesting across the world, across hugely different government systems, hugely dis- different economic contexts, says there's something there to watch, that something's happening. Mm. How that will play out, probably different in different parts of the world, but I think it's going to be a kind of core factor and driver going into the future. Mm. So we've got technology, we've got social. What have you got, Joe? Well, based on the recent work I've been doing, I'm actually going to cheat and mention two mm, things that I'm watching. Uh, and they're, they're closely related and they actually um, draw upon the two previous comments, which is one is um, the direction of the international order mm. and its erosion and allied to that are the challenges for governance. Like how do you govern in a world where the international order is under serious threat uh, or is is eroding? or being eroded or attempts to be made to erode it? And how do you govern given a fractious population, international relations that are becoming increasingly frosty and the process of governance itself being something that requires so many things to go right? Um, so this is, this is part of some work that I'm doing uh, at the moment, uh, sort of thinking about the future of governance and emerging challenges out for the next 20 odd years. And well, I've got to say, it's, it's a fascinating question. Mm. And I certainly hope that we manage to navigate it as a civilization, uh, because it's uh, an increasingly fraught time. Mm. Uh, and I guess that goes from the personal to the, the planetary. Mm. I should say you picked up on the environmental and uh, the climate change challenge. Mm. We haven't gone with any economic trends, but I'm sure there are a few. They go we could create same. a scenario right here. Out of all of these, <laughs> indeed, uh, indeed. They go without saying. Well, I mean, Money I, makes the world go round, yeah. as Monty Python yes, said. Yes, and, you know, the signalling debt crises, plural, mm. um, which is, is playing out. I don't know that that's a futures thing, no. right? Um, but, again, it's the convergences of all of these you know, major thematics yes. playing in. Um, I was actually a bit of, uh, uh, I'm just trying to quote what I've read recently in relation to some research about, I think it was just released uh, this week in Australia where they talked about um, the level of loneliness within 
18 to 24-year-olds, separate issue, right? I mean, we're talking about the disenfranchise and we're talking about, you know, people being disconnected and so forth and it, it, the, the the actual um, level of individuals within society that are disconnected. Again, this this sort of plays out in the whole, you know, issue of protest and, and various other issues that, again, they don't happen in a kind of linear way, mm. as we know. Um so, again, I think we've picked every potential topic, you know, playing out as a potential issue. Yeah. Uh, I think we could spend at least another hour yeah. talking about trends. <laughs> this is, you know, if we had a diverse group here yeah. and we could bring together some interesting thoughts and generate some scenarios about the future, that is sort of one of our methods, isn't it? Um, okay, well, look, I think listeners would love to know from you where they could go for more information. Um, we have our National Security College website, which has a little bit of information about the Futures Hub, and we'll put some details in the show notes and link in um, the resources that we think people might be interested in. But um, I'd love to hear from you on whether it's podcasts or academic articles. Um, what do you suggest, Joe? Where should people go? So I'll give a plug to my former colleague, Peter Hayward, and, and several of our former students who got together to form FuturePod. It came out of a particular student's final project in our 21st century challenges subject. Uh, so that's futurepod.org. Uh, and there are, at last count, about 160 episodes that are interviews with uh, founders of the field, but also emerging voices. So you get a, a range of different views about how people do futures, how they came to it, what their methods are, and what they're watching, what what the trends are, or what the dynamics are that they're watching emerge. So there's a huge diversity of view there from all sorts of countries and and worldviews. Great. What about you, Adele? Um, I'm going to probably go a little bit more sort of old school tradition, um, traditionalists and uh, Alvin Toffler's Future Shock, which is a, he wrote back in the 1970s, I think reasonably seminal in relation to futures thinking and so forth. And I say that particularly if people are kind of keen to, you know, go there and, and read that. But it's it highlights that, you know, the complexity and uh, societal changes and um, pressures, particularly on individuals to navigate uncertainty, has, has always been there and has always been considered and the overwhelm there. So I suppose it's just sort of grounds it in. It's, it's been there. It continues to be there, particularly the complexity. Um, and I, I find that, I, again, I, I um, have read that a couple of times, kid me not. Um, the other one that I've just recently finished is called What We Owe the Future by um, William Mackerzel. Uh, again, a really interesting one from a long-termism perspective and – he kind of put that moral aspect around what we do over the future and a different perspective of putting oneself in somebody else's shoes so we can think more positively about the future and do something more from a from a how do we fix it perspective. So I really, I really like that perspective. Um, if I could uh, give a plug to the Australian New Zealand Policing Advisory Agency's Futures Toolkit from a practical perspective, um, they've done a great job. Um, on that, and particularly from a policing um, agency and organisation perspective, uh, clearly the uh, Futures Hub ANU 
uh, National Security College. I have to, I have to say, yeah, so because as I mentioned that. earlier, um, you, you know, you were literally uh, my my uh, rock when I had no idea and was given this amazing challenge. And and uh, I think we did, I think we did some good stuff. Um, <laughs> And continue to, uh, you continue to be connected very much with the AFP. Um, my, uh, other one I tend to go to is, um, UK government office, you know, websites and they've got a huge amount of practical and they're updating again. Um, go uh, Canadian government, uh, Horizons yeah. uh, is another great one and Singapore, um, again, and all at government level, which says something and yeah. maybe that's a good, Good sign from an Australian perspective where we're going, perhaps, and mm. and having those resources. Um, also, along with New Zealand, do a great, great. Again, there's so much accessibility to some great information, um, and obviously great resources more close to home from our NSC perspective. Yeah. What about you, Ryan? What do, we, what do you think? Um, I was going to kind of pick up quite a few of the those existing ones, and I think probably for our audience. You know, if you're working in government, you know, the things that resonate with your leaders that will get them across the line tend to be comparative countries around the world. So UK government, Singapore mm. Centre for Strategic Futures, Horizons Canada. Uh, the US National Intelligence Council puts out some interesting stuff. New Zealand government has some interesting stuff. Australia is somewhat lacking at the moment, but really I believe there is work underway under the uh, APS reform banner to kind of address some of that. And there's a big push in government to, um, for those who don't know, futures and foresight capabilities being listed as one of five core capabilities for the Australian public service to develop. So hopefully this is a watch this space. And I obviously have to give a plug for, you know, we do have a Futures Hub website, which we're building out, and we also run a number of training programs. There's Introduction to Futures Analysis and an advanced kind of futures course focused on actually achieving impact and embedding this in organisations. It's worth mentioning that the Futures Hub also lead an Australian Public Service Futures Network, which has uh, a couple of hundred members now from states and territories and federal government. Uh, we also have really good connections um, into some of the sort of private sector firms who've inquired about our training and being part of the network as well and also developing some strong international links. So we'll put some uh, good resources in the show notes for people to explore and read further. And we're always happy to have a chat with anyone who's interested in finding out more. I think a, a lot of our work is just having that chat with people to explain more and, and help people think through what this might look like for them in their context. Great. Well, I think we've had a really interesting and enjoyable chat about futures and potentially what the futures may may look like. Um, I'd like to thank you for being part of uh, our National Security College podcast today. Thank you to Dr. Joseph Foros, Adet Melly, and Dr. Ryan Young. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thanks. Could have gone on for hours more. <laughs> <laughs> Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.